Welcome to the Beeson Podcast, coming to you from Beeson Divinity School on the campus of Samford University in Birmingham, Alabama. Now your host, Timothy George. Welcome to today's Beeson Podcast. Well, I'm just delighted to introduce to you uh, Dr. Peter Lightheart. Uh, Peter and I have been friends for several years. He's just recently moved back to Birmingham to be the president of the Trinity Institute. So, Peter, welcome to Beeson and to this podcast today. Thanks very much. It's great to be here. Now, say a little bit about who you are, where you came from, you know, what kind of ice cream you eat. Who are you as a real human being? Yeah, you've given me about three minutes to get this <laughs> to get this done. That should be plenty of time. I'm a uh, minister in the Presbyterian Church in America. Uh, I've taught for the last 15 years at uh, New St. Andrews College, which is out in Moscow, Idaho. I'm a theologian. And uh, in a small setting like um, uh, New St. Andrews College, which is a startup college in the 90s, I also was teaching other subjects. I taught uh, literature and uh, pretty much anything that I had the fancy to teach. So I recently moved, as you said, back to Birmingham. I was here as a pastor almost 20 years ago, and I came back last summer to start the Trinity House Institute. Trinity House is a leadership training uh, institute, also uh, study center. It's connected with the local church here in Birmingham, Trinity Presbyterian Church. And uh, we're seeking to train future leaders for the church, particularly in the areas of Bible and liturgical theology. This is the culmination of a couple of decades of work uh, among a group of uh, reformed Presbyterian ministers and, and theologians. And this is the second phase of it, trying to extend our vision into a new generation. I know one of the things the Trinity Institute sponsors are the Nevin Lectures, because you asked me kindly asked me to give those lectures last year. Uh, why Nevin? Yeah, John Williamson Nevin was a German Reformed theologian in the United States back in the 19th century, and uh, he captured in his work and in his uh, life ministry uh, a lot of what we're aiming at at Trinity House. He was uh, Reformed, uh, a uh, secure Protestant, but also uh, a... Uh, a reformer in liturgical matters. He was a, a, interested in sacraments and uh, and an opponent of some of the anti-sacramental uh, uh, practices of the of revivalist Christianity in the United States. Uh, so there's this vision of uh, liturgical a liturgical vision that we get from Nevin that we resonate to, and also an ecumenical vision. That was one of the that's the background of the Nevin lectures. Uh, we're asking theologians from outside our own particular tradition to come and speak to us during the, the week of the Nevin Lectures about some topic that uh, where there's differences among uh, Christians. So uh, you spoke on Baptist sacramental theology, um, and uh, we had uh, 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 hoping that this will be a place for discussion among Christ- different Christian traditions. Yeah, it was a great experience, and I'm just really excited to have you here and have the Trinity Institute up and going, and we're looking for ways to partner with Beeson Divinity School and what you all are doing. Uh, I think there's a commonality of vision at certain points. So, Now today, uh, before we get to that, say a word about your family. Yeah, I'm married for 30-plus years. We have 10 children, uh, three of them still at home. The rest are scattered around the country, uh, on the move all the time, and uh, yeah. seven uh, seven grandchildren, two of them, still in utero, but we're uh, waiting eagerly for their appearance in the next few months. 
So it's wonderful that you've joined uh, the Evangelicals and Catholics Together Project on marriage because uh, you can speak from personal experience yes. right. of some of the things we're wrestling with in ECT. Well, I do want to talk about a recent book you've published. Now, you've published a number of books. You're, you're a prolific writer and a deep thinker. Um, tell us just two or three of the volumes that you've done, and then we want to focus on the most recently published one. Yeah, I've, I've written in a number of different areas. I've written a number of biblical commentaries, um, written on a couple of Old Testament books, First and Second Kings and First and Second Samuel. Uh, because I was teaching literature for a number of years in Moscow, I have published study guides on different literary works, Shakespeare and Dante, and a couple of books on Jane Austen. Um, and I've also written some uh, more theologically oriented things, uh, a book called uh, uh, Deep Comedy, which is a study of the Christian understanding of the shape of history and trying to connect that with Trinitarian theology, uh, and uh, a book on kind of on political theology that uh, deals with Constantine and the questions about Constantinianism. Mm, so it covers a wide range of topics and uh, if you're if you're a reader of First Things or you read the First Things blog, you'll see Peter Lighthart there, and uh, you're a great contributor to what we're doing in in that arena. So you, you you're a Renaissance kind of guy. I mean, you can talk about a lot of different things. But today we're talking about gratitude because that's the title of your most recent book, published by Baylor University Press just this year, this yeah. past year. So it's just out, and you can get a copy of it. I want to begin by quoting you to yourself. And then you can comment on what in the world you meant by this paragraph. Jesus was the first ingrate in Western history, and he set the pattern for all later ingrates. With Jesus and Paul, a seed of ingratitude was planted in the European imagination, which grew to be one of our civilization's most important and enduring features. Most of those who draw from this early Christian instinct for ingratitude do not adopt Jesus and Paul Holy, They renounce tradition, but in the name of reason, not God's word. They throw off the shackles of gratitude debts, not to give all thanks to God, but to give thanks to none. In detaching Christian ingratitude from its theological basis, they create something quite new. Now, that sounds very counterintuitive to call Jesus the first great ingrate. What in the world did you mean? Well, um, obviously, that's rhetorically uh, provocative. I, I put it that way for uh, for effect. It seemed to have affected uh, some readers, I guess. Um, I think you have to understand that you have to go into a little bit of the background of Greco-Roman gratitude, which is where I start the book. I, I start the book with the ancient Greeks and spend a good bit of time talking about how gratitude functioned in the Roman world. And uh, what, I, what I mean there by gratitude is not just the, the feeling of thankfulness that we get when we receive a gift, but uh, particularly the indebtedness and the uh, demand for reciprocity that comes with uh, receiving a gift, uh, according to the ancient world and according to uh, a lot of the uh, uh, tribal cultures that have been studied. One of the inspirations behind the book is uh, the great little uh, monograph by uh, Marcel Mauss called The Gift, uh, and one of his major, major themes, Mauss was a French anthropologist one of his major themes was that in tribal cultures, there is no such thing as a free gift. Um, you receive a gift and you're expected to reciprocate in some way. Uh, you're indebted to the person who gave you a gift and you have to, you have to uh, pay that back. And that, 
uh, uh, partly inspired by most, but uh, just by looking at the ancient records, and a lot of Greek and Roman historians have recognized that that's a, a dynamic of Greco-Roman society. In some ways, that's the dynamic that holds Greco-Roman society together. Uh, you have patrons who have um, uh, power and influence uh, position. Uh, they can bestow uh, gifts of status, uh, sometimes material gifts, but not necessarily material gifts, uh, on their clients. And by by giving these gifts, the patrons hold these clients in a certain kind of debt, and the clients have to repay them. They have to they have to uh, uh, s- uh, provide service of some sort to the patron. And, you know, it's at its extreme. This is a kind of mafia system. Where, <laughs> you know, the I was going to say, it sounds like <laughs> politics to me. <laughs> yeah, it's very much. This is the way Roman politics work. It's not just in, it's not just between different social classes, between patrons and clients. You have it, of course, between uh, Roman emperors and the populace of Rome. The whole the, the famous theme of bread and circuses is a certain kind of gift giving, uh, and you're trying to trying to create uh, again uh, a sense of obligation on the part of the people, uh, the, the populace, so that they support you, uh, support your policies. They uh, they're satisfied and happy with uh, with the uh, regime. So that's the way that uh, ancient Roman uh, and Greek society functioned, the way that politics functioned. As you said, it's still true in spite of our, in spite of our myths uh, otherwise. It's still true in democratic societies. Uh, on the, in the internal workings of Washington, it's all about uh, doing favors for one another and, and uh, calling in debts based on the favors that you've done for another, uh, yeah. for another politician. Now, you talk in the book about circular giving and linear Right. What, what, describe that difference. By circular, I'm talking. What I'm describing is the Greco-Roman pattern. is uh, is a circular pattern, uh, where uh, you have uh, you do a favor, the person who receives your favor is uh, obligated to return something to you, uh, and there's a there's a cir- he closes the circle by doing some kind of service. Uh, you know, sometimes in ancient Romans, uh, the clients would be uh, obligated to. Uh, walk through, walk through the streets with the patron. At least this is what the satirist said. We don't know how literally to take this, I suppose. But we walk through the streets with the patrons and would shout out their name and and proclaim their generosity to everyone. A little entourage clustered around the patron as he was going through the streets of Rome. So that that was one of the obligations that they had. Uh, that's a, that's a circular idea of gratitude. But the the linear idea is is kind of a modern idea where we you you pass you you, you receive a gift. There's no sense of obligation to return that gift, uh, but uh, you just uh, receive it and uh, you know receive the gift of of tradition, for example, in um, post enlightenment philosophy. You, you, instead of receiving that tradition, trying to build on the tradition and, and contribute something back to a tradition, uh, you might just reject the tradition. You critique the tradition and move on. There's no sense of uh, of uh, restoration. What I suggest in the and this gets back to your original question. What I suggest the Christian vision is, uh, it's a convoluted sentence, but let me start again. Um, I suggest in the book that the Christian vision is a circular one, but it's an infinite circle. So uh, what I see in the New Testament is that God uh, becomes a party to all transactions. Uh, What particularly brought this out was a a couple of monographs that I worked through on the book of Philippians and some other parts of the New Testament. And Philippians is a, a pretty outstanding case because it's a letter written to a church that had provided Paul with material support for his ministry. He's writing a, a thank you letter, uh, as it were, to uh, supporters, to patrons. 
but he never really quite says thank you to them. Uh, he thanks God for them. Uh, he never says, I'm indebted to you, I will repay you at some point, which is what, in the Roman world, what would be expect, expected from somebody in his position. Instead, he says, God will repay you according to his riches in Christ Jesus. So God is the one who receives thanks for the gifts that Paul receives. God is the one who's supposed to repay. Uh, instead of having the small circle of reciprocity that you have in the ancient uh, Greco-Roman world, you have an infinite circle where God is a party. God secures all. Uh, he's the recipient of all thanks. He secures all repayments. Uh, you know, the Father is the one who uh, who rewards. Um, this the same thing that Jesus says in the Gospels. Uh, another uh, set of passages that uh, struck me during my research was the uh, were the passages where Jesus talks about giving without thought of repayment. Um, it sounds like just complete obliteration of then the notion of reciprocity. But he, almost always he follows that up by saying, because your heavenly father will reward you. <laughs> mm -hmm. <laughs> so give without thought of repayment. You're not getting repayment from the person to whom you give the gift or to whom you make the loan, but you are expecting reward. You're you are expecting that the father will take care of you uh, mm. if you're generous. You don't look at, uh, and I think what that does is create a, a, a zone of freedom by expanding the circle of reciprocity uh, it creates zones of freedom where uh, clients are not just beholden, uh, infinitely beholden to their patrons. Um, but instead, uh, a, a giver gives without thought of return, looking to his father to care for him. The recipient receives and gives thanks to God uh, and is freed from any kind of uh, slavish obligation uh, reciprocity. Now, within that big infinite circle of Christian reciprocity, Paul does talk about uh, gifts and reception. He talks about the Gentiles receiving spiritual goods from the Jews and the Gentiles uh, returning uh, those, uh, returning material goods. He's collecting money for mm -hmm. uh, for the famine relief in Jerusalem. So there's still a, a kind of reciprocity, but it's within this much larger framework where God is the one who secures uh, uh, who secures all exchanges and pays all debts. Uh, and he's a, he's a generous Heavenly Father, so we can trust him to, to make things come out even. Interpret the parable of the prodigal son according to this paradigm. Uh, a lot of what Jesus talks about has to do with a critique of the way these Greco-Roman practices had infiltrated Judaism. So when he talks about, you know, don't take the, the highest seat at the table. Um, mm -hmm. When you're uh, making up your guest list, you don't think about who, what influential people you can invite. Why would you invite influential people? Well, because you want reciprocity. You're expecting them to invite you back. Um, when when they make their guest list. Jesus says, make a guest list of people who can never repay you. So th th that's a major theme of the Gospels, and I think, and particularly of Luke, that's a that's a recurring theme. And in the surrounding chapters around uh, chapter 15 where the, where the uh, prodigal son occurs. Um, but I think what you have there is an, an, a good example uh, of uh, both the generosity of the father, certainly, the generosity of the father to a son who has not um, been faithful in in repaying his gifts in the past. Uh, but you also have the interesting, I mean, the, the punchline of the whole story, of course, is the older brother mm. uh, who is surly and and uh, angry about about uh, the generosity of his father. Uh, and he wants, to, he wants to operate in that smaller, uh, narrow circle. He wants, uh, he wants to be rewarded for the service that he's done for his father. And he, he's, uh, he's offended by the excessive generosity that his father shows to an unfaithful son. So I, I think it's a really good illustration of the kind of the contrast between the Christian conception of generosity and gift giving 
uh, and the, the older brother who's still operating with that older Greco-Roman idea. You know, we often call it the parable of the prodigal son, but it really is the parable of the prodigal father. The prodigal God is the title of a book by Tim Keller uh, that points to this extraordinary, unexpected. Uh, grace is so overused, uh, but it's the kind of uh, unmerited attention and favor God extends to to people for no reason of their own, except that, you know, he thinks that's a good idea. Well, now, in the early church, you know, the Christians who took Jesus seriously and and began to try to live according to his way of thinking and following in his footsteps, became very much at odds with the Roman Empire as they moved out into the that arena in many ways, the, because the Roman Empire would regard them as social ingrates, as not really following the pattern of acceptable um, promotion, progression. So how did Christians respond to that? Oh, I think that uh, exactly right. I, I, I didn't find any text that uh, included that accusation of ingratitude, uh, but I think that's uh, that's a that's a theme of of uh, pagan criticism of the early Christians uh, underlying. Well, I don't I don't know that it was ever stated, but it does seem to me that that would have been uh, that that's that's part of their uh, critique and and uh, part of their attack on on Christianity. Uh, Christianities are antisocial. That's one. That is a, an explicit uh, criticism charge that's brought against the early Christians. Um, and part of what that means is that they're standing outside of these um, patterns of uh, gratitude and reciprocity. That that's what makes up the fabric of Greco-Roman society. And the Christians are uh, seem to be uh, blissfully free of that because uh, the- <laughs> Celsus, the the great pagan critic of Christianity, says these Christians will they'll take in anybody, you know, women, idiots, right. uh, people, slaves with with nothing to bring, and right. they'll just reach out and include them like they were part of the the community. Right, and that's it, reflecting what you're talking exactly about. right. And in, in, in a Greco-Roman or in a Roman context, that just looks like it's purely irrational because you don't. You don't lavish gifts on people who can't repay you. That's that's just a, that's a waste of gift. The only ways, the only reason you might do that uh, is to win uh, plaudits for your generosity from somebody else. You want to be seen to be giving gifts, mm-hmm. but the, the fact that Christians were lavishing uh, generosity and kindness and compassion on people who couldn't repay them was was quite a violation of uh, of, uh, of, of you know expected Roman social rationality. I think the other part of that that gets into some parts of the later book, <clears throat> fairly early on, I think you have the the reintroduction of some of these pagan practices into Christianity, and I, part of uh, uh, part of the book is deals with the medieval corruptions of Christianity, and I think this is provides a, this um, provides a way of thinking about what those uh, what those corruptions were. And I think it's a um, uh, it's a reintroduction of these pagan conceptions of reciprocity. So, you know, uh, the Eucharist turn, gets turned as as Luther charged gets turned into this kind of instead of being a gift of God to us, it becomes something that we offer to God uh, mm-hmm. and expect repayment for that. Uh, it relations with um, with saints. I mean, we they actually you know, even call them patron saints, which is yeah. not not accidental. You have kind of a return of patronage, but now you have patronage of dead people. Yeah. Um, so I think part of part of what's going on in Christianity, you have this uh, quite revolutionary social pattern that comes out of the early church and is growing out of the New Testament, and then it kind of gets accommodates uh, over time to some of the uh, some of the common pressures of uh, of uh, social life, 
uh, and uh, I think the Reformation is kind of a an, an effort to recover some of the revolutionary uh, impulse of the early of early Christianity. I'm glad you mentioned Luther and the reformers. I wanted to ask you about that. Um, Particularly, uh, one of my favorite documents in the 16th century, I think one of the great documents in Christian history, is the Heidelberg Catechism, 1563. And gratitude is a major theme, perhaps the major theme, in the Heidelberg Catechism, which offers questions and answers on living the Christian life for every week of the year. Say a little bit about the Heidelberg Catechism and gratitude as a major theme within it in the light of this analysis. Yeah, again, I think that that's a, that's a, be a good example of many, I think you could draw from the Reformation of a recovery of, uh, the early, early Christian. They're going back to the New Testament. They're going back to the sources and they're recovering this early Christian apostolic vision of what gratitude and gift giving are and gratitude as directed toward God. And the fact that the Reformation, uh, uh, uh excludes and rejects the whole apparatus of intercession of saints you don't have these intermarry patron intermediary patrons uh that are uh, that you're uh, supporting the, that you expect uh, gifts from you're standing uh, quorum deo you're before god your heavenly father who is the gift giver and who's r- r- the recipient of all things so i think that the, those those are exactly the themes that i think are driving again it's not the only thing to say about the reformation but i think it's uh, it's another way of getting at some of the revolutionary effects of the reformation um, and part of that, uh, you, your quotation at the beginning also, um, I think, grows out of that, because the Reformation is a recovery of some of those themes. But then in the following centuries, those, uh, that, those uh, what I call ingratitude, that gets detached from its theological context. Um, and in the Enlightenment, you have, in the Reformation, you have a critique of tradition. Uh, the Reformers don't think that they have to slavishly just receive the tradition that's been given to them. They receive the tradition with gratitude, but they also recognize that it needs to be reformed uh, and, uh, and and revised in various ways. But you you have you have that impulse in the Reformation, which is I think going back to that early Christian sense of ingratitude. But then you have that secularized in the in the early modern period. Um, so the, the Reformation in the aftermath of the Reformation, you have a uh, uh, the ingratitude that Christianity introduced that it sheds its theological moorings, and the the father is no longer the the one who secures the uh, the uh, exchanges of gifts and 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 gratitude. There just isn't any. Uh, there's no securing of that. But there's also no small circles. Um, those have been destroyed, or at least theoretically, we think they've been destroyed. Uh, that old Greco-Roman practice is gone, but you don't have the theological moorings to have an alternative. So what you have in modernity is kind of a, a a Christian vision of gift and gift giving and gratitude, but detached from uh, the theology that drives it in the New Testament. How does this uh, thesis on gratitude that you developed in in your book relate to our economic values and systems, capitalism, socialism? Yeah, one of the one of the things I focus on in a couple of chapters of the book is the development of early modern. Social, uh, economic and political thought, and I think what's ha- what's happening there, it seems to me, is um, the formation of distinct zones of, of of human life, and I think it's mostly I think it's theoretical. I don't think it actually, as I said earlier, I don't think it actually works the way that the theorists say it does in practice. But uh, f- for example, John Locke, 
uh, quite deliberately in his two treatises on government, quite deliberately um, says that gratitude is not the basis for political order, although it is the basis and it's a, it's a virtue within the domestic world, uh, but it doesn't have really any function in the political world. So you have this distinction between a privatized realm of gratitude uh, and a public realm that's, that's governed by other, other sorts of uh, values. And you find something similar going on in Adam Smith and some of the early uh, theorists of political economy where you have a, a system of justice and, re- and just reciprocity, just exchange in the public realm. Um, he still advocates gratitude. Uh, Smith has uh, an extended discussion of gratitude in uh, his theory of moral sentiments. Um, certainly not against gratitude, but it's also not a public issue anymore, as it was uh, up, I think, up until the uh, Elizabethan period still. Uh, gratitude was still a public and political issue. So, it, um, um, again, I think this is more theoretical than actual, because not only in politics, but in, in our economic life and business life, uh, people function by uh, in terms of reciprocity. They do favors for one another, and then they expect favors back, and that's just that's the way that, um, you know, Businesses have have uh, unstated and uncontracted kinds of relationships with each other that uh, resemble the kinds of relationships that you had in the uh, in the ancient world. So, but they, theoretically, we've got this split between uh, an economy that functions on different principles and a private life that functions on principles of gift giving and gratitude. Um, so, in part of what I'm, uh, this this is a, uh, a a point that a number of recent writers have made. Uh, uh, David Schindler, for example, has written on gratitude as a <clears throat> as an economic phenomenon and tried to reintroduce gratitude into economic life. Try to close the gap that the early modern theorists bring up, and I think that that's uh, I think that's um, uh, that move is the right one. I think that at the same time we have to recognize. That split, I think, does have its deep roots in the what I'm calling early Christian ingratitude. And so as we sort through that as Christians, I think we have to recognize that part of what's going on in that modern bifurcation of a realm of gratitude and a realm of uh, justice, if you will, I think part of what's going on is a, is a uh, kind of distortion of a Christian impulse. So we don't want to lose that Christian impulse. So what I suggest at the end of the book is not a, not a reversal of modern order, but uh, a... Uh, uh, a kind of a theistic modernity. I think we need to rethink some of the theoretical uh, underpinnings of modernity, but within this theological context. Our time's almost over. I want to ask you one more question, maybe the most difficult one. Uh, as a father of 10 and a faithful husband for many years, how does this work out in the life of the family? You're asking me a practical question. I'm, that's, that's much more difficult. You're right. <laughs> it's interesting you should bring that up. This is something I've been uh, talking to my children about just this week. Um, um, this uh, you know, applies to the family and applies more broadly too. You know, Paul says at the end of Ephesians, uh, near the end of Ephesians 5, uh, give thanks always for all things. Gratitude is a universal response of Christians because uh, everything that is uh, and everything that we have is gift. We have nothing that we have not received. Every breath is a gift. Uh, not only the spiritual gifts that we have in Christ, those are certainly gifts of God's grace, uh, but all the the uh, physical pleasures of life, uh, the you know the delights of creation, and uh, the taste of food, uh, coffee and caffeine, for example, uh, are all great gifts of God to uh, to His people. And and so because everything is gift, gratitude should just infuse everything. 
Um, that's a very difficult thing to do. And, and that's one of the things that, uh, as, as I said just this week, I've been trying to reemphasize to my family, remind us that our instinct is one of gratitude. Uh, you don't like what you're being served for breakfast. Um, but uh, this is what this is a gift from God. You don't like the decision that your parents made about, uh, you know, whether you can do this and such this weekend. Uh, but your parents are a gift from God. And your instinct should be to receive that with gratitude. Even things that are, um, even things that are uh, difficult, pain, painful things, uh, the suffering that we go through in life, whether it's um, you know, uh, natural suffering like disease or suffering because of our faith, uh, that's something that we should receive as, still as a gift from God. And, and, and I think it's, it is significant. I didn't make enough of this in the, in the, in the book in retrospect, but I think it's high, hugely significant that the major ritual that Jesus left his church is a ritual of thanksgiving. Um, to take the bread that represents his body that's going to be broken uh, and the blood that's going to be poured out and to uh, take those in his hands and first give thanks to his father. Uh, precisely for the sufferings that he's going to undergo and for the joy that's set before him on the other side of those sufferings. Uh, that, uh, that's the, uh, in family life and in, uh, in business and whatever, wherever sphere we're in, uh, Eucharist is the keynote of, of Christian living. Well, my guest today on the Beeson Podcast has been Dr. Peter Lighthart. He is the president of the Trinity House Institute here in Birmingham, Alabama, He's a well-known writer, thinker, and most recently the author of a book called Gratitude from Baylor University Press. Peter, thank you for this wonderful conversation. Thank you very much. You've been listening to the Beeson Podcast with host Timothy George. You can subscribe to the Beeson Podcast at our website, BeesonDivinity.com. Beeson Divinity School is an interdenominational evangelical divinity school training men and women in the service of Jesus Christ. We pray that this podcast will aid and encourage your work, and we hope you will listen to each upcoming edition of the Beeson Podcast. <laughs>